0: In the past, at least in the past as we like to remember it, wars began with declarations and ended with surrenders or negotiated peace agreements. In the real world, most emphatically in the real world of the 21st century, there are wars and there are wars between wars. Jacob Nagel, a visiting fellow at FDD, served as head of Israel's National Security Council. Earlier, he served in the Israeli Defense Forces, rising to the rank of Brigadier General. Brad Bowman is Senior Director of FTD's Center on Military and Political Power. He has served as a National Security Advisor to members of the Senate Armed Services and Foreign Relations Committees, also an active-duty U.S. Army officer, Black Hawk pilot, and Assistant Professor at West Point, from which he also graduated. They are with us today to discuss issues of war and peace and the gray zone in between. We're pleased you're with us, too, here on Foreign Policy. Qasem Soleimani, who led the powerful Quds Force of the Islamic Revolutionary Guard Corps, was killed in a drone strike at Baghdad International Airport, an action authorized by President Trump. Uh, Yaakov Nagel, what impact, if any, has that had on the military and and, and proxy forces that Tehran commands really throughout much of the Middle East nowadays? First of
2: all, I think in... I saw a lot of uh, criticism about it. I think it sent, first of all, a message from U.S. to the world that credible military threats or credible military attack of the U.S. is again on the table. This was the first thing. Second thing, it will affect the way that the forces are working in Lebanon and Syria. It will take time because we have to remember that Suleimani was there for many years, so, most of the plans that are running now are plans that he orchestrated before. So, he
0: set up a structure and in these the, countries
2: that continue to work without this him? The structure can continue to work without him when you are not planning new things, uh-huh. the things that are already being there. But I think that the new things will take time. In a matter of fact, again, Suleimani was someone that should be dead. This is for sure for many years. He killed Americans, he killed Israelis he was the archi Syrians, Syrians, uh, Syrians, Arabs, Arabs Muslims, everyone, Kurds. Everyone, Let's be clear. He was an archi-terrorist and he deserved what happened. But we know that graveyards are full with people that are not replaceable. So someone will come instead of him. It will take time. He was really, really, really a key member, a key a policy holder, a key a leader of this terror organization. So It happened, and another thing that happened in our area is that, according sometimes to foreign press, sometimes to Israeli announcement, Israel is acting much, much more aggressive in this area to solve the three red lines that uh, we talked several times about, mostly making sure that uh, precise guided munitions that we call PGMs are not going from Iran to Hezbollah. All right, we're going to get back to yes. precision yes. guided munitions,
0: and I do want to talk about that, and that's uh, that's important. But you're saying without Soleimani, the Israelis can be more aggressive against Iran and the, the Islamic Republic's forces and its and it's attempt to set up a new front, essentially, in Syria, and to send more precise weapons to Hezbollah and Lebanon. Let me it's, just... Uh, it's,
2: it's not because Soleimani is not there. It's because... But the message is there that mm-hmm. we can retaliate. It's not that when Somali was, Israel was afraid from Somalia and yeah. didn't react. But after what happened and other things that happened around it, and probably we'll talk about it later, Israel it looks like yeah. Israel is coming back to the war between wars against Syria. We'll get to that. We'll get to that too. But let's yes. not
0: skip ahead too fast. Brad Bowman, I want to picking up on on what uh, General Nagel said. You've heard a lot of. Cr- Criticisms, I I think, um, I certainly have about uh, the the elimination of uh, Qasem Soleimani. Uh, One thing you hear is, well, was was he imminently going to attack Americans or others? Was it imminent? It's an interesting question, but I'm not sure it's a relevant question. Should we really care whether it's imminent or? Knowing how much blood he had on his hands, not least American blood, over 600 probably American soldiers uh, in Iraq, um, and knowing that he probably was not in Iraq uh, to have dinner and movie with a friend, uh, that he was probably planning to to orchestrate the attacks that had been continuing on our embassy and elsewhere under international law uh, by on the basis of mil- basic military planning. Wasn't this a – would you not say this was the right thing to do?
1: I am grateful that Qasem Soleimani is dead because he was Iran's terrorist in chief. And he is responsible, as you said, for the death of over 600 American service members. If you look at the army's official history of his experience in Iraq, there's a paragraph there that is quite notable. It says that the uh, Iraqi militias that are responsible for the deaths of over 600 Americans there from 2003 to 2011 owe, quote, their existence and lethality to Qasem Soleimani and IRDC Kud Force. The history actually mentions him by name. And so there's 600 patriotic Americans who did not return to their families because of this man and were better off because he's dead.
0: And two other things I want to just pick up on. One is it's, we, people sort of know what the Quds Force is. It's an expeditionary force, but really it's, the, it's their foreign legion, isn't it? It is, their, it is sometimes terrorist, sometimes not. But it is the, 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 the point of the spear that means to go out beyond the borders, not defend the borders, of the Islamic Republic of Iran, but go beyond the borders and really subjugate other lands,
1: is that? I think that's right, and General Nagel knows this better than me, but the primary export of the Islamic Republic is terrorism. Uh, Perhaps that's the primary reason why the Iranian people are so upset right now. They'd rather a a government that focuses more on their well-being rather than the export of terrorism, and the primary means by which they've done that in the past few decades is Qasem Soleimani. And one more thing before I go back to General Nagel. Qasem Soleimani, it seems to me, thought of
0: himself as untouchable. And I think his superiors did too. I mean, he was going around the region taking selfies and that sort of thing. And in a sense, he had been right until he wasn't. In other words, under President Bush, under uh, President Obama, they knew who this guy was. They knew what he was up to. They made decisions not to eliminate him. I think he thought those decisions and that view of him was irreversible.
1: That's exactly right. He got sloppy, and he got sloppy out of arrogance, based on American inaction. And I think uh, that reasoning is the same th- reason we saw an escalating pattern of aggression going back to last May. They started with the sabotage of ships, then they downed an American drone in international airspace, then they attacked the Apcake facility in Saudi Arabia, then they start to attack U.S. bases in Iraq, and then they killed an American. And to you know, I, I, uh, to President Trump's credit, he was not willing to accept that, and that was part of the reasons why I think Qasem Soleimani. He's now dead. And I believe, at least for a short time, we've reestablished some level of deterrence. But given the character of this regime, I wouldn't expect that to hold for too long.
0: Right, right, right. Now, Tehran supports uh, Hezbollah, which essentially controls Lebanon at this point. There are protests going on in Lebanon a lot. The economy is in very bad shape. One thing is that while Tehran instructs Hezbollah in Lebanon, I would imagine it can't fund Hezbollah in Lebanon the way it did in pre- during previous, the previous administration because the US, this administration, the Trump administration, has been starving it of funds uh, through, through sanctions and what's called the, uh, the maximum pressure uh, policy. Uh, so what has that meant for Hezbollah there, that they have to make more money through drug cartels in Latin America or they have to
2: tighten their belts? First of all, they had to tighten their belts. And again, you mentioned it very, very uh, right, is that the JCP way, instead of That's the Iran cutting, deal. Mm-hmm. Yeah, the Iran deal. Instead of cutting Iran from something, it really funded Iran supporting terrorism, exactly as you said, mostly Hezbollah, but also other, the Houthis and Hamas and others. So Hezbollah, yes, they had to cut some of their funds. Unfortunately, they didn't cut the real top priority programs, like the one that we mentioned, the PGMs. Even... The supporting the uh, Syrians in uh, their uh, uh, fight against the rebels, still Hezbollah supported. We know that they need a little bit less of Hezbollah in Syria today. There was a big question mark in Hezbollah inside. A lot of debates. Do we have to continue support the Syrians? Now they are finishing with ISIL and others. And we are really, really wounded. Uh, but we have to Bear in mind one thing. Hezbollah is controlling Lebanon. All the uh, missiles on the southern part of Israel, all the villages, all the missiles inside villages, that the human we, shields. We, the human shields that we are in FDD, really uh, leading the, the world uh, fight against it. It's all being held by or run by Hezbollah, started Soleimani, but also Hezbollah can do these things alone. There is, there are, Difficulties in Hezbollah because of lack of money it's not something that really changing dramatically their behavior if it will continue. This is why the maximum pressure scheme is very very important to continue
0: now in in Gaza um, you have Hamas, which is pr- pretty much in control, it also has been getting funding from the Islamic Republic, not in Iran, the same sums, but not yes. in the same sums, and in some instructions, I don't know how well they take it, but there's a second group people are less aware of that operates in Gaza. It's called Palestinian Islamic Jihad, Pij. It is very much funded and very much instructed um, by by Tehran. What's interesting here is they've Pige has been very aggressive against Israel. It has appeared at times that Hamas, has really not wanted Pidge to do that, not wanted to uh, attack the Israelis and suffer the counterattacks that inevitably follow. A couple of interesting things. One is that Hamas has not been able to control Pidge, maybe because of Tehran, they dare not. Secondly, Israel has, has very surgically, very surgically gone after Pidge, not Hamas, and yet, I'm not sure. You tell me that the situation has changed Israel's benefit, and that Pidge is still operating. Pidge is still attacking when it against Israel when it can. Pidge is not. I, I don't know. Maybe has Pidge been crippled in any way over the past few months?
2: It's amazing that you are mentioning it uh, in this time frame, because the last round, you know, the last two rounds uh, in in Gaza against Israel uh, were led by Pidge. On the first one, Hamas was standing. Side. The Pige didn't like it. They uh, said that Hamas are also some of the uh, traitors. And still, the Pige was again, and Israel understood it. So they went aggressively against Pige targets, as you said. On the last round, it was not like this. Pige was the one that really started it. For the first time, Israeli changed its retaliation scheme and killed two Pidge leaders in Damascus uh, as an answer for what they did in in Gaza. But in this time, the Pidge understood and they didn't go against Hamas. Hamas also didn't go against Pidge. They didn't join them. But they didn't say, you should stop. They encouraged them uh, uh, silently to continue. Israel, in this time, our retaliation was not only against Pidge surgically. It was Pidge mostly, but also against Hamas. Because for the last round, it looks like Hamas and Pidge were coupled. So it's a very, very interesting thing to see what's going on in Gaza and where it's going to lead us. Because the so-called settlement between Israel and Hamas, not directly via Qatar, via others, is with Hamas only. The Pidge is out. So... No one knows where we are going after the elections in Israel concerning Hamas and Gaza.
0: You know, I, there's just one more question on Qasem Soleimani I wanted to put to you, Brad, and just get your thoughts on. And that is, after Qasem Soleimani was killed, uh, there were reprisal rocket strikes from the Islamic Republic of Iran. No Americans were killed, but quite a few Americans were wounded um, from, the, from, from from the from the bombing. Uh, talk about whatever you want with that because the the things that concern me, we had the foreign minister, Javad Zarif, saying, well, this is all we're going to do because he appeared not to want the U.S. to continue to mount the escalation ladder, as we call it. Uh, On the other hand, those who say, oh, they're going to get revenge, but they'll serve it as a cold dish later on. Uh, There's a question of why we didn't have any any anti-missile defense. And there's a question of whether we should say okay, they got their revenge, all's cool, if they don't do anything more, we won't do anything more – just talk about this situation where this where we are left after the killing of Qassem Soleimani and the kind of reprisals we saw from the Islamic
1: Republic of Iran oh, no, thank you no, i mean after the killing of Qassem Soleimani there was clearly a political need for the regime in Tehran to do something to respond to show their 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 um, the Iranians that they're tough and they could beat their chest so they wanted the ability to launch ballistic missiles have video of those ballistic missiles taking off And ideally, they wanted to uh, hit bases where Americans were at. Um, They launched 16 ballistic missiles with quite significant warheads on top of them. Um, And uh, they hit two bases. And uh, um, many Americans may not know. The following, and that is the United States military, arguably the best military in, in the history of the world, did not have the means at that moment to shoot those ballistic missiles yeah. down. It doesn't mean we d- couldn't do it under normal circumstances. We have Patriot systems and THAAD systems that could have done it just fine, yeah. but there were none within range that could have taken these down. So that all we could do was watch and wait for impact. And uh, as someone who served in the military, I find that completely unacceptable. Um, uh, we needed to have the ability to protect our troops at these bases. We did not. Thankfully, no one was killed, but many were injured.
2: If if I can add to this one, and again I was talking with Brad about this one, I think it's not, it's, a, it's a known secret that if those systems were there, probably 90 95 percent of the missiles uh, uh, could be intercepted. I heard I don't know it's it's an American this uh, uh, you know uh, decision. Some some people told me that maybe there was a decision not to intercept. So. This round can be finished, and that's it. If it intercepted, I don't think so. I think that the uh, United States should intercept every missile that's coming against it. Yeah. That's it. It's something should happen.
1: Yeah, the, yeah. no, it's a, it's a good point. The, my, I'd only add that um, we did not have the means to shoot those missiles down. We knew that they were going to be launched. We had the intel to know that. Um, we tracked their entire flight. We knew when they were going to arrive, and we we di- we uh, we spread our forces out to minimize damage. We, we had people in bunkers, um, but you know they were launched in at least two waves, and that and you do that to inflict casualties, right? Because the first one hits, and then you have the reaction forces, you have the people on the fences, and these sorts of things, and then you, the second one comes. So this was this was an uh, attack. I would argue, and not everyone agrees with it. Was intended to do some damage, but regardless, the main point I'm making with missile defense is that we didn't have. Uh, ballistic missile defense there because there's anyone evil in the Pentagon. They have a finite number of Patriot batteries and THAAD batteries, and they made the decision, frankly, probably the right decision, that it was more important to protect our bases elsewhere in the Middle East where we had more aircraft, more personnel. And up to that point, prior to the cost of Soleimani strike, there really was not uh, a reason to expect a ballistic missile attack from around on bases where we were focused on the counter-ISIS mission. But after the Soleimani strike, I wonder whether the Pentagon looked at whether they needed to move in air defense in anticipation of a potential
2: response. I don't know if we did or not. And to, and to enlarge their capabilities by by acquiring more American systems and partner systems, those systems are giving you back much more than you are uh, really investing in them.
1: And Cliff, if I may, just one thing, the the budget request, the president's budget request for fiscal year 2021 that submitted uh, for the Pentagon doesn't even keep pace with inflation, right? And so, you know, I, I applaud the Trump administration for what it's done over the last three years in restoring a, a readiness and trying to reverse deterioration of American military superiority. And that's been for a number of reasons, including more spending on the Pentagon, but this year's budget request for the Pentagon doesn't even keep pace with inflation. And as a result, the money requested for the Missile Defense Agency is, less, uh, is uh, 11% less than the enacted level last year. And so as a result, if you look at the number one unfunded priorities for the Missile Defense Agency, it's a, an additional fad battery, this, this, this air defense system. It's additional uh, missile defense missiles. And so you know, I'm just not sure Americans are going to be uh, happy with the situation where we leave our troops unprotected. And I think this is money that we can and should spend.
0: General Nagel, you've written and talked quite a lot about what you call the war between the wars. Um, armies, when not at war, train; they prepare for the next conflict. How, oh, that's always been the case. How how is this concept different from simply training and preparing for the next round uh, of conflict?
2: Great question. You know, and I thought that you are already you all also wrote about it, and I even adapted your uh, sentence. Say the gray. Is the new black, <laughs> right? So gray gray zone, gray zone. New black. But no, that's right. Yeah, yeah. Gray's no you black. Say gray zone. gray the new black, you met you yeah. the gray zone is the new black zone. Right. And I think it's important. You can even go back to von Clausewitz, one of the biggest people that really the philosophers. And of, you knew him well. I, I didn't brain. know. Clausewitz. No, you no, didn't know. Okay, just, it's not yeah. that old. I, I, I I'm not that old. Yes, it's okay. <laughs> one of my friends knew knew, knew, knew him well, uh, and he said that look, a leader. The main important decision of a leader to know which war he is going to fight and to prepare for it. Now the war between war, even so, it's the, 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 really the definition is to prepare yourself under the level of war to the next war. But it's another kind of a war. It's all the parameters that you have in regular war. You have in the war between war. You have to have goals, measured results. Building the force to it, having good intelligence, having your cyber, and I'm sure we will, we will talk about it. All the parameters are there. Your goal is to make sure that when you will come to the next war, classic war, you will be much prepared and your enemies will be much less prepared. Now, it's not the same for Israel or for the US or for any other country in the world. Every country has to define to himself to themselves. What is the goals of their war between wars? Israel started it almost 20 years ago when we went from the high-intensity conflict to the low-intensity conflict about terrorism, and then the second Lebanon war, and then the PGM, the Precise Guided Munitions Program, started, and then the uh, Iran nuclear uh, uh, system and and program. Which one of them needed a certain and different sometimes Parameters, tools, means, and goals mentioning war between war. Now, the most important thing is that you have to define it, to put it as part of national security strategy, sometimes even to change the national security strategy. This is another article I wrote with uh, Jonathan Schanzer for FDD, a big one, saying what Netanyahu wrote in the Israeli New National Security Strategy, mainly. What the, w, the war between war caused to this uh, to this strategy? For example, telling the Iranians, look, it's not going to happen again in the next war that you are going to sit in Iran, sending your proxies against us, and you can st- 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 uh, stay still. The war between wars, yes, it's also against Iran. The war between war on the nuclear program was against Iran. The war between war on their proxies in Syria and Lebanon goes also against Iran forces in Syria and Lebanon. But the most important is that the war between war is a war that being working against a a, a country, against the U.S., if you want, against Israel, against others. It's a real war.
0: And, Brad, one of the aspects of gray zone war is the use of um, hostile measures that are seen as unlikely to bring uh, escalation by the other side. So, for example, the Russia uh, thinks, oh, we can do various things to make Americans hate one another. We can make them question the legitimacy of their election system. They've done that effectively. We can do things to um, heat up um, bad race relations. We can make them think that fracking is a danger. There's all kinds of things we can do to make Americans dislike each other and I think they've actually done that effectively. The Chinese can be stealing our military secrets. Not It's espionage but it's also hundreds of billions of dollars of theft. That's pretty hostile. All sorts of means through which uh, our adversaries – are, are breaking up the, I guess I would say, the old binary view that there's war and there's peace. And how many people do we know, and not least in Congress, and the left and the right, who think, yeah, w- war must be declared until then you're at peace, and then the war ends, and somebody hands over their sword or surrenders on a ship, and now we're back at peace again, and so there's war and there's peace. That is a wonderful view of the past, that is not the world we're in today.
1: I completely agree. You know, I, I I, and others have called that a false binary, you know, a false binary that, like you just said, we're either at war or we're at peace. And frankly, that's probably the view that I've had most of my life. And and those who are old enough to remember the Cold War kind of uh, that uh, kind of facilitated that view. And I think, unfortunately, that false binary is one of the reasons why the United States has been slow to wake up to what the Chinese are doing because the Chinese read their own military philosophers including Sun Tzu from 2500 years ago and, and 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 he did not take this false binary choice there's there, you're it's conflict it's competition and we're fly, finally in the United States belatedly regrettably belatedly waking up to the kind of competition that we're in we're in the we're in the gladiator ring we're in the boxing ring and we just didn't realize it. We were on the ground getting pummeled, and now we're standing up. We're starting to, you know, uh, uh, gird ourselves and starting to fight back. Um, but we're doing it belatedly, and, uh, and and that competition takes a variety of forms. So in Israel, they're calling it the war between wars. Here, we're calling it gray zone. But you're exactly right. The whole idea is to incrementally chip away at American security, and do it in such a way that either we don't know they're doing it, or it never rises to the level that it incites a kinetic response. And over time, those incremental steps result in re- real
2: damage to our national security. I, I, I want to emphasize one thing that I didn't mention before. It's exactly the war between war is against this, against this false binary. There are three basic, I call states or situations. Usually, we thought that the, it's only no war or war. It's, we have three stages. It's a routine, it's an emergency, and it's a war. Now, most of the war between wars are in the routine and the emergency areas, and the methods are three very important methods. And I think if you have to choose one important issue to teach our so called leaders what they have to decide, is the methods, because you can do it open. You can do it, it's a war between wars, but it's open. It can be covert and it can be secret, meaning, One of the really good important things about the war between war is that you can keep the deniability space for both sides. Sometimes it's very important to do something in a way that the other side can say nothing happened. It was just rain. No one spit on me. Uh, And sometimes it's very important. You do what you want and you let the other side say, and what are the main goals and if if i if i have to put a a definition of the war between war is a continuous set of action but it's under the war level with an overall predefined the predefined plan and force build up with three three uh three i call it main main uh things first of all you want to deter you need a deterrence and then you want to prevent it's the prevention and then you want to have the influence and the decisive victory so It's all three areas. The war between war is defining a new area of building special means, special intelligence, special decisions, and it's better for the countries. And it's not the same for Israel or the US or any other country. Every country has to define what is war between war for them.
0: You know, I was recently at a dinner with a very senior American official, I won't say who, because it was off the record, Uh, a number of former officials and a number of very esteemed professors from different universities. These were all conservatives. I would think they would identify themselves. But what they were saying, um, you could hear a lot of people on the left saying as well. And I found it disturbing. And essentially it was this. We were talking about Afghanistan uh, and the new plan that the Trump administration has there. And I would say most of these people I'm talking about would like to see the U.S. out of Afghanistan completely. As you know, both of you, the current plan calls for a reduction of troops from 13,000 to about 8,600. That's not serious war fighting, but it's enough for an assisted advised mission, which means Taliban doesn't get to take Kabul or any of the provincial capitals that holds none right now. And one of the people I'm talking about said, you know, why don't we just declare victory and leave Afghanistan? And I thought that's an amazing thing to say. I was reminded of Uh, a favorite saying of uh, Abraham Lincoln's. He He used to say, how many legs does a dog have if you count the tail as a leg? And Lincoln's answer was four, because calling a tail a leg doesn't make it a leg. And calling a defeat a victory doesn't make it a victory. You can fool perhaps yourself, but no one else would be fooled. And it seemed to me that once you sent that message that we're willing to be defeated by the Taliban after 18 years completely let ha- happen whatever happens, that sends a message to the Chinese. Well, I guess they're not going to care about Taiwan. It sends a message to Putin. I don't think they'll care about Estonia, Latvia, and Lithuania. It sends a message to Iran. I don't think they care about anything in the Middle East. At that point, they all, at least, to, and, and to terrorists everywhere, we can do what we want They will back off because they don't want to fight even if they have the means to to fight. Brad, do you you agree with me? And
1: I do. Cliff, I do. And um, I think one of the lessons that Americans can and should learn from our our friends and partners in Israel is the necessity of keeping constant pressure on our adversaries. Constant vigilance. Constant vigilance (laughs) and constant pressure. And whether we like it or not, problems – and, uh, and other maladies in the Middle East can and do hurt us here. You know, that was the central lesson of 9-11. And it's just mm-hmm. shocking to me that Americans who are old enough to remember 9-11 seem, some of them, to have already forgotten that lesson.
0: Right, because we knew through intelligence, we knew who we knew. Who we knew what Al Qaeda was. We knew who Osama bin Laden was. We knew that in 1998 yes. he said, "I'm yes. declaring war on you." We said, "Who is he to declare right. on war us? What could he possibly do to us?" We didn't have the imagination to say there are a lot and of things. President he could
1: Clinton do. launched a few cruise missiles at some yeah. empty tents, and you Symbolic. know, I called it a day. Call it a and day. We Call didn't we didn't keep sufficient pressure on them. And, um, you know, we, we, you mentioned Afghanistan and people have different metrics for success in Afghanistan. For me, the fundamental metric of success for Afghanistan is, has there been another nine eleven 11 attack? And the answer is no. And and so those who have served in Afghanistan, I think, can be proud of that fact. And if we leave prematurely, I fear there will be another 9/11 on this country. And the next time, it might include weapons of mass destruction. So, um, if we can prevent that from happening by keeping three, four, five, eight thousand troops in Afghanistan indefinitely, to me, that's a good investment. And someone might say, "Well, Brad, what about?" the American service members uh, who are risking their lives. And I say, absolutely, every American service member is injured or killed is a, is a national tragedy. You know what else is a national tragedy? 30,000 dead New Yorkers because we didn't keep pressure on terrorists in, in Afghanistan. And so, um, you know, uh, that's what's so admirable about this generation, including your son, Cliff, of people who raise raised their right hand and serve. is they're saying, send me. They're saying, I will stand between you, American public, and those who want to kill you, and I'm willing to do it. And that is why it's so noble. And so um, uh, they are, th- this is, these are volunteers. That's why they're worthy of our admiration and respect in every cent they earn. And if we forget the lessons of 9-11, we're going to have another 9-11 here at home and more Americans will die. And that's what the Israelis, in my opinion, have right about their campaign between wars. They understand you need to make your enemies more concerned about a bomb landing on their head so they don't have time to plot their next attack against you. You need to remain on the offense, that's not right.
0: simply on the defense. It's not enough to I mean, it, I'm not opposed to having border security, I think that's very necessary, but Beyond that, you want your enemies not to be able to plot against you in peace and tranquility. They should be looking over their shoulder constantly. Now that doesn't say where you want to deploy your forces, whether it's Qatar or Kuwait or Afghanistan or Syria. That's a strategic decision, best I think made by the military to say, here's where we need to be forward, here's where we don't, here's where we can operate from offshore. That's a th- th- that's a different question. The important question that I wish we could, on a bipartisan and among, not least among conservatives, agree upon is in: we need to be on the offense against all those who we know wish to do us damage and harm and are plotting to do so. We cannot just simply wait till they come after us and then say, well, we'll get revenge one of these days. Revenge is not a strategy.
2: After such a compliment from Brad on the Israeli uh – forces, and it's okay, I I cannot say it's wrong, especially if it's a compliment. What I'm saying, it's exactly uh, emphasizing what I said before. Israel and the United States, both of them are in a war between wars for many years. Israel declared that it's a war between wars. First, the services, the two chiefs of, the last three chiefs of staff, mostly Isaacot now Kohavi, but also Uh, guns everyone started it before the United States some people in the United States I'm saying it It's they didn't declare that they are in a war like you wrote in, in your article some people but from both sides of the map they don't understand that doing those kind of things in the war and especially and again I can go to another country that have enemies around it they don't want to declare war but they have to do actions of the war between war, to keep it under the war level and to get their goals and their results out of it, make sure that their enemies will be prevented from doing their jobs. So don't call it a war. But, as you said before, if you call it a leg, if you call the tail leg, does make it, not a, it doesn't make it a leg. But also, if you call a war not war, it doesn't make it but it doesn't, it's a war. doesn't make a Sometimes it it's a war even if you won't call it a war. You know,
0: you, you, you wanted to – if, if I may. Go ahead. Yeah, no, i got sorry. a question for
1: you. Uh, the, um, I think what I'm observing right now in the United States is a um, – a, a coalescing of odd bedfellows when it comes to U.S. national security policy. And by that I mean the following. You have two groups that normally disagreed on, on a lot that are starting to come together in, in an unfortunate way. You have folks on the far left who uh, unfortunately sometimes habitually seem to think if we're just nice to people they'll leave us alone. And, and unfo- unfortunately, Al-Qaeda didn't get the memo on that. Um, and then on the far neither right did the, Neither did the Islamic neither Republic of Iran the, yeah, the and Obama sent long. him the memo yeah, quite literally. Their distribution effort on that memo was was apparently not very good. A lot of people didn't read that memo, but um, you know, people want to hurt us even if we do come home. It's kind of an odd thing, but uh, 9-11 unfortunately taught us that. And then on, on, on the center right, frankly, um, you have some people that rightly want to focus on China. I, I, I do agree with the national defense strategy that great power competition is and should be our, our number one priority. And so they, they take those on the right take that good starting point and say, okay, therefore we need to withdraw a lot from the Middle East and my response to that is is that if the, if you want to prosecute an effective grand strategy or strategy against China then the worst thing to do would be to completely withdraw from the middle east because by having 10 15 20,000 troops you know 5,000 in Iraq 1,000 in Syria Five to eight thousand Afghanistan. If that's a, a sufficient investment to prevent the next 9/11, one, you're going to keep Americans safe. Two, you're going to be able to prosecute your war against China. The biggest threat to a successful grand strategy against China is another 9/11 attack. And if you want that, the way you do that is you withdraw from the <coughs> Middle East. There's five hundred. There's roughly 490,000 active duty troops in the U.S. Army. 490,000. We can afford 15,000 in the Middle East to prevent the next 9/11. Yeah.
2: One thing that I want to mention again is that I was uh, emphasizing for the uh, war between wars or other things, but you have to understand if it's a war, you have to manage a continuous risk management. Because if you want to stay under the war level, you have to make sure that you are doing it in order to stay. And what happened if you are going over? You have to have a multi-level force build-up and means to do it. And we didn't mention, but all the cyber war. It's also a war. Even so, no kinetic uh, missiles are there. Maybe no casualties, but there are casualties because people don't understand what ca- what number of casualties cyber war can happen. So really, we are going to a new media, a new world. It's starting for the last 10, 15 years. People that are inside understand. Most of the people don't understand that it's sometimes can be... More devastating war, but also you can uh, achieve your goals much better so your enemy will be prevented from doing what he wants to you in the next war.
0: Brad, you mentioned uh, rightly that the U.S. and Israel have on occasion partnered quite well. Iron Dome is a great example, which you know a lot about, General Nagel. With U.S. investments, this anti-missile system was developed quickly and relatively cheaply. But Brad, you had an idea that I want you to talk a little bit about um, to go the next step, which is the idea of a, a permanent, not ad hoc, kind of working group to develop military capabilities that would be useful. Um, for both American and Israeli warfighters. I think you're calling it the U.S.-Israel Ops Tech Working Group. Tell us a little more about
1: oh, thank that. Thank you. Yeah. No, the first time you suggest something new in the U.S.-Israel uh, Defense Partnership, a lot of people say, yo, we already do so much. And, and it is absolutely true, thankfully, that the U.S.-Israel and Israel, uh, Military Partnership is deep and broad. I mean, the, the cooperation between U.S. and Israel on missile defense, on Terror tunnels—the the list is long. Are you know working with national guards, all all, all sorts of things? Um, but what was not currently occurring is the systematic exchange upfront of capabilities requirements in the military. There's this idea of requirements: what it, capabilities are you going to need in the future to fight your adversaries? And that happens currently on an ad hoc basis. But there is no currently no institutionalized systematic way in which. Israelis and Americans come together periodically and say, here's the capabilities we're going to need. Here's the capabilities you're going to need. And as a result, you have capabilities gaps that continue to emerge. Let me give you an example. Israel has had active protection systems on their armored uh, vehicles, their tanks and so forth since 2011. In 2018, then Chief of Staff of the U.S. Army General Milley, now Chairman of the Joint Chiefs of Staff, testified and said, we, the United States, cannot produce anything equivalent to what the Israelis are currently producing. So therefore, we're going to buy the Trophy Active Protection System. This is a system that uh, intercepts incoming rockets and mortars and things coming into our tanks. So we're purchasing this Israeli system. That's great. That's wonderful. Those systems are now on our M1 tanks that are uh, conducting exercise in Europe, trying to deter Russian aggression. That is a good thing. Buying buying Iron Dome, buying this active protection systems on the tail end is good. But that's different than what I'm talking about. What I'm talking about is let's get together and talk about what we're going to need five and ten years from now up front and develop the cooperative R and D programs so that we don't keep having these capability gaps emerge, I think if we did that, we would find weapons that we would field more quickly and and less expensively.
2: I think that what uh, Brett just uh, mentioned, and we talked about it a lot, it's a great idea. We have to make sure that on both sides, we are planning and preparing the answers for the, I don't want to call it opposition, but those that will say, don't invent the wheel again. We have something like this. And there are a lot of names people know, JPEG, JPMG, others. The biggest difference here, and, you know, Brad just mentioned Trophy. I know Trophy for 30 years. Trophy started the joint technological development, uh, Israeli and American uh, money. Other things, like, for example, Iron Dome is something that was developed in Israeli money, but uh, the production is a generous American Uh, assistant. Uh, David's link is something that was started from beginning as a joint program, the same as the Arrow, but all of them started as programs for Israel, United States helping. Now, for example, take David's link. Even I do if we would think about it before, of course, Trophy and Iron Fist and others, and all the IDs, all the other things. If we will start from beginning that we need this system, What we need for, and again, it's not all over the the place. There are are areas that the United States will not join Israel or Israel will not join the United States. I'm not talking about, okay, let's do all the planning of Israel and the United States together. I'm talking about certain niche, certain areas that can be uh, developed ops and technically together in order at the end to have solutions for the United States and Israel together. And the people that will say, but we have it, will tell them, look, you will continue to run it. It's the MOD, the DOD, and others. But let's start to do something together for both uh, countries. Otherwise, at the end, it can happen or it cannot happen. If it's both, because otherwise, you know, the, the biggest, the biggest problem of uh, R and D people is the NIH, not invented here. If it will be invented together, no one will say not invented here. It will be, and it will be for the benefits of both countries. There are a lot of difficulties. We mentioned some of them. There's another countries in the world that we have to make sure that are not going to benefit from those technologies. But if you will be afraid of the difficulties, you won't start anything in your world.
1: You know, the U.S. and arguably Israel are in a race. We're in a race to develop technology to ensure that our service members never confront an adversary that's more technologically advanced than our own. We're in a race. And whether it's uh, autonomous, uh, AI, directed energy, whatever it is, we're in a race. And the United States is a superpower. Israel is not a superpower, but they're an innovation superpower, and they're incredibly agile when it comes to innovation, and the U.S. can can bring economy of scale. So if we can work together with with Israel that is so innovative and bring the United States economy of scale, we can ensure that our warfighters, both Israeli and American, never confront a more advanced foe, and that will deter war and win it if necessary.
0: And what that requires, again, is something a lot of people find exhausting and don't like. It means you're in a race, and it's a race that's never going to end. Okay, so for example, and it gets back to one thing that I wanted to come back to, Iron Dome, brilliant, uh, a missile is launched, uh, Iron Dome sees it, plots the trajectory, knows where it's going to land, if it's going to land in a un- an isolated area, don't worry about it, if it's going to land in a populated area, take it out, but you're talking about dumb missiles, and the problem is what you mentioned earlier in this, program Precision-guided munitions, which means missiles that are not dumb, they're very smart. They go up, and then they can decide in the air, or a pilot can decide on the ground where that missile lands. Iron Dome is not up to the task of taking out precision-guided munitions. That means we need another generation of missile defense in order to do that and that's only one of the many things that the reason we recently have all these missile defense systems is after all you're talking about missiles that are that go into the uh, into space missiles that don't all sorts of things. This is a different subject I won't probably get into today, but you and Brad, Brad, you and I have talked about the need for comprehensive layered missile defense so that no missile launched on earth can hit its target if we don't want it to. That would be what we really would want. And I would think we could use Israeli partnership to develop such a system, although a lot of the technology Frankly exists if we would only implement it, isn't that? That's true. That's true as well. So I mean I throw,
2: I don't want to discuss it for a long no, time. We don't have a lot, but go ahead. I just I I first of all I have to comment technically on what you said. Some of the things you said are right, correct, some of them are a little bit not. Correct meaning me, please. Meaning Iron Dome was mentioned, was built in order to intercept the short range, as you call dumb. But Iron Dome can handle also. PGMs to a certain sure. to a certain level, mostly by reducing the covered area. The David sling system was uh, developed and built exactly for cruise missiles and for maneuvering missiles because of the speed. This is why it costs ten times more. Right now, I agree with you. The uh, world should go to a multi-layered system all the time. Another layer, another layer, another. Like everyone was talking about the. Last laser. Uh, well, laser is something.
0: Uh, by the way, just let me throw this laser in. Laser
2: is not good for uh, maneuvering sometimes, but it's good as as another layer together with Iron Dome as another interceptor to uh, save the cost of the missiles. But we are not talking about the because we're not because going the to interceptors measure. are more expensive by uh, far uh,
0: than the missiles they are intercepting. People have to understand that.
2: Yes, but uh, but the missiles are much much uh, less uh, costly. Then the damage. And the damage. That they that are preventing, do, right, so right, it's right, right. Yeah, you know it's yeah. always the what is coming back, uh, first, the chicken or the egg. At the end, Iron Dome is being uh, developed and being matured. Still, you are right. They are layered. We have to work together to uh, counter all those uh, next yeah. generation threats. Uh, this is one of the areas that I think that this uh, this uh, uh group that can be can talk about and see what we can do together. And, and one
0: of the problems this raises is is China. And among other things, China has g 5G, 5G, the next generation of communications technology that nobody has – maybe if the U.S. and Israel had worked on this together and seen the threat that would be posed by China getting way ahead of us, something could have been done about that. China also has something called military-civil fusion. You've written and talked about this, Brad, which means that there, there isn't – that's the other thing. Just as there's no real division between war and peace in a place like China, there's no division between the commercial sector and the military sector. It's all one. That presents – a really big threat and challenge.
1: I agree with you. I think the concept of a private sector in China is an outdated uh, misnomer. It's a fiction. Mm. And the sooner that uh, America and our allies come to realize that, the safer we'll be. There, uh, there, There is no such thing as a private company in China. Yeah, there might be a company that is operating privately right now, but they're one phone call away from Beijing from changing that fact. And so that's why I think Britain's decision, for example, with respect to Huawei is such a mistake. Um, and, and, uh, and why this is such a challenge, because a lot of times you say, Hey, you know, be careful of China. And then people say, but you know, we have to distinguish between the military and civil, right? It's a fair kind of theoretical point, but. It doesn't recognize the reality that in their own words, the Chinese Communist Party says, we're trying to break down the barrier between the two. And if you accept that there is no such thing as a private Chinese company, there, there's just it's just a matter of time until Beijing tells a private company that it's invested in the United States or Israel or England or Germany, say, we want you to do X and they're going to do X. And the sooner we wake up to the fact, the safer we'll be. I think that
2: what Brad just uh, mentioned, that the uh, UK decision, Israel decision about 5G, you know. Now, also in Israel, you will find people say, look, when it's coming to defense or to dual technology, we are really doing a good job. And I'm telling you, I'm coming here, we are doing a a good job. We are not selling to uh, countries that are adversaries of our biggest friends, anything that is defense or dual. But the world is changing. I'm not talking about the corona, I'm not talking about other things. The world is changing, meaning the difference and the bridge It's becoming very, very, very wide between the civilian and the uh, defense technologies. And the biggest, the biggest example is the AI that you can artificial intelligence. Artificial intelligence. You can develop something to differentiate between someone that is having cancer or not using big data, machine learning, all those very nice words that everyone. It's really a very, very much sophisticated algorithms to find anomalies, to find changes. To uh, distinguish or to analyze a huge, a huge, uh, vast uh, data and to come to decisions. It's very easy. It will be very easy. And I also some arguments on this one with my friends in Israel, because I'm between the worlds, the civilian and defense one, is that no, no, we can, we can uh, control it. Maybe, but it's a danger. It's a risk management that you have to take to make sure that no one will take The algorithms and the data and the technology that you develop for the civilian and diverse it and change it and use it uh, to build defense systems or weapon systems that will go against your friends. This is very, very dangerous.
0: Last subject I'm going to ask you about today because I'm puzzled by it. Brad, uh, Turkey, a NATO member, in fact, the NATO member with the largest military aside from the U.S., has been in recent years very cozy with the Russians and theoretically NATO protects – NATO members protect each other from the Russians most of all, uh, theoretically. Uh, Right now, there's an interesting clash between the Russians and the Turks uh, in Syria of all places. Um, Just – Talk about that situation. You don't have to have an opinion on what to do or what, but, it, but maybe just straighten it out for us and what's going on there in the, and, 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 and what that represents, what's going on.
1: You know, I mean, we have to very quickly remember how this started. This started with the Syrian people uh, advocating for their rights, and uh, um, the ruler of Syria, Assad, responded with a brutal crackdown that, over time, morphed into a civil war. That created a uh, a haven in which ISIS could emerge, and 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 uh, um, and and now it's uh, become one of the, the great humanitarian catastrophes that we've seen in recent decades. And what has enabled Assad to remain in power Are two countries primarily? It's it's Russia and Iran. Mm -hmm. Iran wants Assad to remain in power because they want a land bridge with which they can uh, resupply their terrorist proxy Hezbollah in Lebanon and threaten our our ally and friend Israel. And Russia wants Assad to remain in power so that they can maintain their bases, their air base and their naval base in the Mediterranean, a a warm water port. Those are, in my view, the fundamental reasons why they want him. They don't give the Turks and the Russians will sacrifice
0: any number of Arabs for that. They don't
1: care how many innocent, long-suffering Syrians have to die or starve. In the process, they just don't care. Um, and Erdogan um, is, uh, you know, you said correctly. Uh, Turkey is a, is a NATO member. But in my view, in so many ways, they have not been acting like a NATO member. And, and, and one of the leading examples is they, they purchased an air defense system, the S-400 from Russia, which is kind of interesting because in recent days, they've called for a no-fly zone in Syria. How does one enforce a no-fly zone? Well, with aircraft and, and air defense systems and how interesting that they have a Russian air defense system. So if I were a... A Turkish intel officer, or a Turkish military officer right now, I'd be wondering if there might be a little some surprises in the software on my S-400 system that might prevent it from working if they were ever
0: employed. It. In other words, the uh, S-400 air defense system that they, the Turks bought from Russia might not work against Russian well, I mean, aircraft.
1: I mean, it would be kind of prof- a professional negligence on the parts of Moscow if they didn't put a few surprises in the software there. And so that might be one reason why. I don't know if you're a NATO ally. You might want to get your equipment from your friends rather than uh, non-members like uh, – Moscow.
2: Turkey is not a, but it's a power it's a it's a power in our area because it's a big it's a big country. And I will I don't want to say it but I will say it even anyway, you know, it's it's better that it will be a problem of someone else than Israel. <laughs> uh we have enough problems on our own and Turkey and you know, Turkey used to be uh one of our biggest allies when I was the head of military R and D I was going there two or three times a day a year and we almost and we did a lot of cooperation until there will be ch- there happened ch- happen to be changes. And the reconciliation agreement between Israel and Turkey after the Marmara, uh, we did because of uh, American pressure. Obama came to Israel 2013 and pressure us to do this reconci- reconciliation. But talking about the last, to, to finish with the last uh, sentence about the S-400, when Israel is talking to the Russians, and telling them, don't sell the S-300 and others to Syrian and others, we are telling them, look, you are saying that you have the best systems in the world. You have to know that if this system will be in our area and will close on our planes, it will be destroyed. And then what the world will say about the S-300 or the S-400. So it's all the world is all a a, a small village. And as exactly what I said. Now the Russians sold the S-400 to Turkey. This is why the Americans canceled the F thirty five, but now this S four hundred will be the, and against when the Russian sell, uh, defense system or weapon system to you. Someone called friends in this uh, decade, in a year or two or three, it can be your enemies. So be careful what you are doing in one end and the other end. Yes, Turkey is something that it can be handled. You know, they have the the next generation of Genghis Khan uh, trying to trying to run this country. I don't think he is a Genghis Khan, he is more a Genghis Erdogan. But what I'm saying is that I count on the United States. They know how to do or how to deal with Turkey. I don't think there is a problem. And the same goes for Putin. One thing I'm confident about we're not going to run out of national
0: security problems anytime no, otherwise soon. One. Otherwise,
2: we, we, we won't have uh, what to do and we need to have some work.
0: I don't have a sufficient number of hobbies and probably you guys don't either. So we'll have you back to talk about all of the new problems that develop and the old ones that continue to mature. Until then, thank you, General Nagel. Thank you, Brad Bowman. And thanks to all of you who are with us again here on Foreign Policy. Thank you for
2: hosting me. Thank you.
0: Thank you for listening to Foreign Policy. If you found the program worthwhile, we suggest you subscribe to Foreign Policy on iTunes, Spotify, Google Play, Stitcher, or wherever you prefer to listen to your podcasts. If we could be doing better, tell us. Send us your feedback, your questions, your ideas. ForeignPotency at FDD.org. For more information about this episode and others and about our distinguished guests, visit us online at FDD.org. Until next time, I'm Cliff May. You've been listening to Foreign Policy.